The Bowery Boys episode 364, The Very Gay History of Fire Island. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we have reached, Greg, our final destination in our road trip to Long Island. In our first part, we explored the Jazz Age mansions of Long Island's North Shore, which were once referred to as the Gold Coast. And in part two, we came down to the South Shore. We walked the sands of Jones Beach and even drove along the controversial parkways built by a young Robert Moses. Well, for part three, we opted to stick to the South Shore. In fact, we are currently just over 20 miles east of Jones Beach in the town of Sayville, about to jump on a ferry to visit the subject of this week's show, Fire Island. We are literally sitting next to the ferry that we're about to board, so we may have to run it any second here. Yeah, so we have the, we're next to the jailbreak, they're cranking the Billy Joel, people are, it's the morning, people are already breaking out the the Bloody Marys, it's marvelous. And... It's a Tuesday. That's the best <laughs> yes. part. No judgment. This is a stigma-free yeah, zone. Now, Fire Island is one of New York State's most attractive summer getaways. It's a thin barrier island on the Atlantic Ocean that is lined with uh, seaside villages and hamlets and linked by boardwalks and sandy beaches and natural dunes. But Fire Island has a special place in history, especially with the LGBT community. It's the site of one of the oldest gay and lesbian communities in the United States, situated in two hamlets, Cherry Grove and the Fire Island Pines. And we're about to head to the oldest of those communities, Cherry Grove, to look at how gay men and women and their admirers found a haven here and away from a world that rejected and persecuted them. That's right, listener. If you haven't figured it out already, we're going to record this whole show from Fire Island, and in fact, from The Grove. And we have some surprises in store, including a very special guest. Yes, we will be joined shortly by filmmaker Parker Sargent, who is one of the curators of the Safe Haven photo exhibit currently on view at the New York Historical Society. But Greg, I'm looking at my watch here. Uh, We've got a couple minutes before the ferry takes off or before we can even board. Mm -hmm. Could you give us a a brief situate of Fire Island and maybe an early history of the island? Yeah, so Fire Island, as we mentioned, is a barrier island on the South Shore, right next to Jones Beach Island, uh, which was featured in our last show, but it is much longer. In fact, it's 31 miles long. It's also different from Jones Beach in that there is almost no automobile traffic. There is a little bit on the western side. A little bit on the western side. What is that about? The westernmost area of this barrier island is today's Robert Moses State Park. In case you didn't get enough Robert Moses, um, there's going to be a little bit more in this show. And that park continues the former park commissioner's legacy here in Long Island. It can be visited from the mainland, but that's actually where the roads stop. From west to east along this barrier island are a string of different little settlements with different 
personalities, including Ocean Beach, which is the largest town and has a kind of fun summertime scene, Cherry Grove and the Pines, uh, which we'll speak about today, in the center of the island. Then another really popular destination on the east side called Davis Park, which has a lovely beach and marina and a very chill place. And while visitors today could drive over a bridge to Robert Moses State Park Mm -hmm. and go to the beach there and park, the other places that we're talking about, especially today's show, Cherry Grove and the Pines and Davis Park, these places can really only be accessed by boat or by ferry, like we're about to do ourselves. And there's a very specific reason why there are no roads here and why, in fact, a lot of that real natural beauty out there remains as it looked for decades. And it's really beautiful. And we'll get to that later. And basic question here, Fire Island, where does that name come from? Well, we are not so certain. It's a great mystery of New York State. You can choose any theory that you prefer. Uh, The oldest newspaper reference that I could find mentioning Fire Island was in the New York Evening Post in 1811, describing a sea voyage that experienced, quote, the burning winds that blow through Fire Island, unquote. Now, the name might come from a corruption of a Native American term. Uh, Some, though, think that it's actually a spelling error on a map that was describing the five islands of Long Island's South Shore. Oh, the the old (laughs) V and the R got confused. (laughs) Yes, a typo, right? Uh, But another intriguing theory speculates that the name comes from pirates who set large fires on the island to lure cargo ships to shore, unsuspecting weary sailors thinking that the fires were a sign of civilization. Fire Island was often used by those in the whaling industry, and the first European settlement here was, you know, not a place to live, but it was a whaling station um, on the eastern end of Fire Island, which today still bears its name. It's called Whalehouse Point. And it's this connection to the sea that actually gives Fire Island its oldest landmark, which is the Fire Island Lighthouse, just east of Robert Moses State Park, which was built in 1858, replacing an older lighthouse, which was built in 1826. So, okay, so we've got uh, so we've got whales and sailors and pirates and lighthouse keepers. Um, it's really quite a swashbuck, a swishbuckling <laughs> adventure so far. We'll when, get to the swishbuckling. <laughs> when did city folks really begin coming out here uh, to stay and as a as a place of recreation? Uh, yeah, well, by the mid nineteenth century, you began to see small hotels and summer retreats that were built out here. I think we'll talk about those a little bit later. But there are no permanent communities until the late 19th century, and those would be mostly on the western end, in places such as Point O' Woods, established in 1894. And by the way, because we're sitting here at the, at the Sayville Ferry site, the, fa- the Sayville Ferry began operation that same year, 1894. So in many ways, like, Sayville is intimately connected with the history of Fire Island. They have upgraded the ferries. Oh, <laughs> considerably. They're not rum runners anymore more like they used to be. Maybe they are, but I don't think so. I think you can get your rum right there. (laughs) 
And you mentioned that Point of Woods is the oldest community, although by the time it was officially established, I guess, in 1894, there was activity in today's Cherry Grove. There was a hotel already. Yeah, it's a, it depends on how, what, how you define community. I think that they both lay claim to that title. In fact, the first elementary school, which catered to that Point of Woods community, was established in 1918, and then a town developed around that, and that town is Ocean Beach, today the largest community out on Fire Island. I guess thus ends the the straight part of today's episode. (laughs) Well, regrettably, those are wonderful places to visit, uh, and I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we're going to focus on two other communities, and uh, Tom, I see a line forming. I think we got to run and catch the ferry. (laughs) Let's head to the ferry, and we will see you in the Grove. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade Don't tell me not to fly, I simply got to If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you Who told you you're allowed to rain on my parade I'll march my band out, I'll beat my drum And if I'm found out, your turn Well, Greg, welcome to Cherry Grove. Oh, it's such a nice, uh, wonderful day to be out here. And, you know, we're out here on a weekday, so you're able to walk on the boardwalks without much effort, not large crowds um, today. Now, if you haven't been here before, Cherry Grove is a small community, a couple hundred cottages that are plunked down atop the sand. There are no roads, as Greg mentioned, just walkways, boardwalks. They get you from the bayside up to the Atlantic Ocean. There's one long boardwalk along the bayside called Bayview Walk and another along the ocean called Lewis Walk. And connecting the two and connecting the bayside to the ocean are 16 walks. So in other words, it's a, it's a fairly small community compared to, you know, many other beachfront areas in the United States. And, and the downtown where we are right now, the center of Cherry Grove, is also very compact. A handful of bars and restaurants and the hotel. So when does the story of Cherry Grove get started? What is all this built from? Cherry Grove traces itself back to 1869, when a house and a parcel of land here that had been owned by a Jeremiah Smith was purchased by Archie and Elizabeth Perkinson. They paid $1,250 for a huge piece of land that actually stretched most of the eastern half of today's Cherry Grove. And were they the ones that named it Cherry Grove? Yes, after the black cherry trees uh, that were growing in the area at the time. Then in the 1880s, the Perkinsons built a two-story hotel and a restaurant that was set back behind the dunes. They even leveled out the dunes themselves in order to give better views of the ocean and, and make it easier for the guests to get down to the water. When does the gay community come into play here in the story? Well, I think that most would recognize that the 
gay story really starts in the 1930s. Although there is a story that Oscar Wilde himself stayed at the Perkinson Hotel while he was traveling in 1882 and even called it one of the most beautiful resorts that he'd ever seen. <laughs> was he out here writing the portrait of Dorian Gay? Oh, God. So as you said, Point of Woods uh, would be developed in the 1890s. But down here, it was really just this hotel that was being run by the Perkinsons. By the 1920s, there were more cottages that had been constructed around the hotel, really where we are right now, and the first boardwalk laid out. According to the book Cherry Grove, Fire Island by Esther Newton, most of these cottages had actually served other purposes back on the shore, Greg. I mean, they they had been places like corn cribs and fish markets and they had just been floated over on barges and plunked down here in the sand. They barged buildings over here too just like in Jones Island. The the bay must have been filled with buildings back then. (laughs) Floating back and forth. Residents here were roughing it. No modern utilities, right? There was no electricity, not in the 1920s and not for many decades. So by the 1920s, you had a very small community here formed around this Perkinson Hotel. What was the scene like? I think it was kind of an odd mix. You know, there were local Long Island families who might be more traditional and conservative. There were fishermen, sort of old salts, you know, hanging out at the bar, sailors um, and others who were looking for kind of an island escape. But this would change in the 1920s as the entire metropolitan New York area was increasing in size and becoming much more mobile. And this was the 1920s. This was exactly the same time that Robert Moses was dreaming up and then constructing Jones Beach just, you know, 20 miles or so west of here. But to compare this to Jones Beach, you know, you know, he built that for automobile traffic. This is so much more remote. In fact, you could only really get here by ferry. Yes, so much more remote. And actually, the Perkinsons, who own the hotel here, saw this as a perk. During the 1920s, the Perkinson family sold off much of their land, uh, and including subdividing land into single plots. I found an ad in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle on May 11th, 1924. There was an ad for Cherry Grove, Long Island. You could get two furnished four-room bungalows, okay, with ocean and bay bathing, boating, fishing, for the entire 1924 season for $250. (laughs) Now it costs about that much just to get out here. (laughs) (laughs) But you see how the popularity was building. By the end of the 20s, there were many more cottages uh, that had been constructed, more boardwalks laid out, and the ferry was actually making the trip back and forth during the summer three times a day. And then by the end of the 20s, once that Southern State Parkway had opened, it was easier than ever to access even Cherry Grove from New York City. So it's developing as an oceanfront community in a very straightforward fashion. When does it get more, you know, gay out here? I think that would be in the 1930s when prominent members of New York's theatrical community discovered the Grove. An artistic community, of course, that even in the 20s and early 30s was very gay-friendly. Because there was a time, in fact, for much of the 20th century, when you could be fired just for being gay. And the, the theater business was a sort of safe space for gays. They could be together and open and not worry so much about losing their jobs or being publicly exposed. 
According to Newton's book, one of the first theater professionals attracted to Cherry Grove was Miss Hallie Cannon, who was a wardrobe mistress for the Theater Guild and who loved the Grove. She, she bought up land, she built cottages herself, and then she drew other successful artistic folks out here, like Arthur Brill, who was a decorator and designer, and Alan Prescott, who was a radio talk show host all of them in the 1930s. And also drawn to the Grove in the 1930s was a man named John Mosher, who reviewed movies and theater for a very hip, very urbane and cheeky magazine called The New Yorker. (laughs) And he didn't just rent, he bought land and built a place here uh, where he stayed with his same-sex partner, Philip Claflin. And to be clear, this was an intimate and tightly connected community. You know, it wasn't like there was a theater newspaper that said, come out to Cherry Grove. This is a place for theater people. You heard about this basically through word of mouth, and you knew someone who was already here. It was very intimate. Intimate and also, let's face it, very privileged. We're talking about people in the 1930s who held privileged artistic positions. There were parties, you know, at wealthy residence cottages, like Beatrice Farrar, who built her two-story cottage called Pride House on Beach Walk in 1937. And of course, locals hung out here at the hotel, which in 1930 was, was actually a little too rustic, uh, so it had been rebuilt and renamed Duffy's. So here in the 1930s, okay, a Great Depression happening in our country. Oh, right, yeah. Out here, you have this interesting combination of locals and then a growing theatrical community overtaking the cultural aspect of Cherry Grove. Creating perhaps a little bit of friction. By the mid-1930s, you start seeing articles about the police being called to contain parties, you know, late-night parties and revelers who came in by, by boat and ferry. I found something in the Brooklyn Times Union on August 22nd of 1935 under the headline, Cherry Grove Jail, Urged to End Whoopee by Aliens. What is that? What does that mean? Locals who were upset by, by all of the whoopee or the partying that was going on here were encouraging the nearby police forces to actually construct a jail to create some order. The jail would never be built. But things would turn positively dramatic in the worst sense of the word on September 21st, 1938, when a massive hurricane made landfall with a direct hit on Long Island. The next day's Brooklyn Daily Eagle was devoted to the aftermath of the hurricane. The front page screams, 19 die, 39 missing in Long Island hurricane. And the inside is just packed with stories about rescues in in various Long Island vacation spots. But the next day's paper put that death toll at 474. And it carried pictures of the wreckage at Jones Beach and a story about how summer residents here in Cherry Grove had watched their cottages wash away into the ocean. According to one article, only 14 of Cherry Grove's 90 buildings remained standing after the storm, among them the store downtown and the hotel. Most of the residents had escaped to Sayville for safety, although eight people stayed behind here at Cherry Grove, including Mrs. Farrar, who wasn't going to leave her house, Pride House, 
And Mr. Perkinson, who, who'd owned the hotel for years, he had actually tried to escape by boat with others, but they had motor problems in the bay, and they had to wait out the hurricane by floating here in the bay. Oh my gosh, this sounds really traumatic. It sounds like it would have spelled the end of Cherry Grove, but in fact, the Duffy's Hotel, like the biggest place in this community, it was still standing. It managed to survive. And the residents of Cherry Grove were already talking about rebuilding and being ready by the next season. And indeed, by the next year, by 1939, they were rebuilding, along with significant help from the Works Progress Administration, the WPA. The Daily News reporting on June 2nd, 1939, that work had just begun on the construction of two miles of new boardwalks in Cherry Grove to replace those that had been swept away by the hurricane. So by 1940 and into the decade here, this new and improved Cherry Grove would be developed already now with very strong ties to the New York theatrical community. And Greg, we have been recording this section of the show while sitting on the roof deck of the Cherry Grove Community House and Theater. And this is the oldest and longest lasting connection to that original gay community, that original theatrical community, which helped develop this sort of new and improved Cherry Grove. So we'll be heading downstairs to the theater to meet up with Parker Sargent, a documentary filmmaker and member of the Cherry Grove Archives Collection, to talk about Cherry Grove in the 1940s and 50s, right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. 
Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Well, I don't know, it's always extraordinary experience. I understand not everybody has that sort of answer. It's something to do with the sun and all that. I wouldn't understand myself, really. You know, quite for no reason, I'm here for the season and high as a kite, living in error with Maud at Cap Ferro, which couldn't be right. You know, everyone's here frightfully gay. You know, nobody cares what people say. Now, though the Riviera is really much queerer than Rome at its height, on Wednesday night, I went to a marvellous party with Nunu and Nada and Nell. You know, it, it, it was in the fresh air, and we went as we were. And we stayed as we were, which was hell. Poor Grace started singing at midnight, and she didn't stop singing till four. You know, we knew the excitement was bound to begin when Laura got blind on Dubonny and Gin and scratched her veneer with a Cartier pin. I couldn't have liked it more, honestly. I've been to a marvellous party. So we're back, and we find ourselves in the basement, the or the lower rooms, the dressing rooms. The dressing rooms, yes. yes. Of the community house and theater, where thousands of talented people have poured in and out over the decades. In fact, we're sort of pushed up against some of the very makeup mirrors that uh, <laughs> Queens, past and present, have used and even signed the walls. So we're surrounded by hundreds of signatures from show nights, gone but not forgotten. And we're here with documentary filmmaker Parker Sargent of the Cherry Groves Archives Collection. Let's talk a little bit about this space we're in, because this is truly like hallowed ground in, in terms of the theater world and also in terms of the LGBT community. Tell us a little bit about the community house and theater. The community house was the first place where the gay population of Cherry Grove in the 1950s got to express themselves. Because remember, there are still laws on the books that prohibit holding hands or any sort of affection, certainly not dressing in drag, and you still couldn't dance together as men in bars and clubs until the 70s, really. So the community house offered a safe space for people to come. They could have parties here and dance together, but also to the plays. The plays were really a tongue-in-cheek sort of look at being queer in the 1950s and how these people primarily that were working in the entertainment industry in the city. They were working in the theater either as actors and were dressers and producers and people that had these wonderful talents in the city and they brought them here to this tiny little theater with no electricity. And they put on these great productions that were fundraisers for the community. But the theater, which, by the way, is inside the community house, when was it constructed? How did it get here? It got here, very famously, the story has been told, that it was floated over from over the bay from Long Island. It was a tiny little farmhouse and came over in 1948. And in order to just pay for it, they put together an organization called the Arts Project. And the Arts Project did the fundraising. They did the shows. And traditionally, just in the first years, it was only one show per year. It became a yearly thing. And then over time, of course, this community house became a real center, a real hub for so many things, so many activities that there's more and more shows. 
The Arts Project is still in charge of it, and Pansy, Tom Hansen, is the president at the moment. And, of course, Pansy himself has a, a great legacy here in Cherry Grove and in this theater. You'll see his name all over the walls here of this dressing room, because each time somebody performs, they sign their name. And that's everybody, just a regular community queen, or to an icon like Pansy or Terry Warren, or to Alan Cumming, who came and did a couple shows here a few years ago. So, Parker, you are one of the organizers and curators of the exhibit that is currently on at the New York Historical Society, Safe Haven, which includes photographs taken in in Cherry Grove in the 1940s and 50s of a very theatrical community. The first thing that we ran into when we were just coming across these photos in our archive before we had any concept that we would even put on a show are two volunteers that are in charge of the digitization They, Brian Clark and Susan Kravitz, who are also the co-curators with me on this exhibit, they were seeing just these photos as they were digitizing them and really seeing something that we hadn't been kind of privy to in the past. Because usually when we think about gay history and anytime it's done in a movie or on a show or something, the visuals that are used are usually stonewall and after. So I feel like a lot of times as gay people, especially of a certain generation, we tend to think queer history started at Stonewall. And these photos were showing us just a great joy and a a happiness, a community where we didn't see that necessarily in gay history. We really saw, like I said, Stonewall, which really is a fight. You know, most of the pictures you're seeing are people fighting for their rights justly. And when we were looking at these pictures of the 1950s and these very flamboyant gay men and um, these very out lesbian women, I was saying, like, I feel like we're looking at people we know today. You know, like they're not some forgotten, scared gay person in a closet, which I kind of always felt it was. That's how it was kind of portrayed is before Stonewall, we were all hiding and we were sad. And these pictures just show gay people being out and exploring their sexuality, exploring gender roles. Some of the pictures with the really like butch women in it. I just, I love seeing that because it's, they are just fighting gender norms on so many levels. Um, And the gay men doing drag, you know, it's illegal to do drag. Pansy has told me stories about in the 70s when he started to do drag as a teenager, how the law was you had to be wearing three articles of men's clothing. So he would wear three pairs of men's underwear. (laughs) (laughs) And these photographs, they portray productions that were taking place. There are photographs of many, many different house parties and benefits and galas. People are dressed for a number of different occasions. Also, people kind of cruising in some of the photographs, too. This is taking place in the 40s and 50s. And and you're right. I mean, in the faces, I think they, they look familiar to us today because people look self-confident. Too. They seem like they're at home, which seems to run counter to the narrative that we were all taught. You know, this is the McCarthy era. This is the era of the atomic family of Ozzy and Harriet. But here you have gay life in full bloom, right? I mean, and it doesn't seem in these photographs that they harbor any restrictions, right? Because they're in a community where they feel like they can be themselves. People are doing a lot of studies about this now, this idea of, you know, how did gay people document ourselves? Because number one, of course, who documents 
yourself, you need the equipment, which is quite expensive at this time. So usually it is going to be white men who are documenting themselves. But then there's the idea of lost history, because a lot of people, whether they were brave enough to take these pictures even, because a lot of people wouldn't even take pictures or be documented in any way as being in this gay community. Because it could be used against them. And legally, like, you yeah. you know, and, and put in the newspaper and your whole life is ruined. You lose your family, you lose your job. And so people definitely hid those images when they did have them. Then you have the, the next step, which is a lot of lost and, and thrown away history, because when you have these gay men die and then their families come out here and they're ashamed of them and they're cleaning out their house, they throw those photos in the trash because they don't want any evidence of the shame of, you know, their uncle being gay on the beach or dressing in a, a, a dress. So, for us to have these photos and to go through our archives as we, you know, start to try to digitize all of this work that was so lovingly collected for years by Harold Seeley, we were just so blown away by that, like you said, the joy and the and the the freedom and how this really was a safe haven for people to come and to explore themselves. And then I think you still to this day I feel as a trans woman, when I come here, I take a certain bit of freedom back with me. It makes me feel more like I'm able to face the world and be myself. And so I, I'm sure that gay men and women in the 1950s, when they came out here and they were with each other and they were laughing and they were proud, and then they were working in the community to make it beautiful, to own homes, to come together as communities and really make this a, a beautiful town that is very famous across the world. It must have really, I think, resonated with them in the rest of their life and then inspired something like Stonewall. Generally speaking, by, say, the late 1950s, what do we know about the men and women who would come out here on a regular basis? Like, did they live in New York, for instance? Like, what did their lives look like when they weren't here? White men who had the opportunity to have money, who had jobs to come out here. Many women in the 1950s didn't have jobs, and if they did, they were with families. Lesbian women were often married, and a lot of our early lesbian settlers, so to speak, were married women. They were married to men in the real world back in New York, and they came here to have their private life. Many of them were, we would call them people of literature. They were writers. They were people who worked in the city. So, People with not great affluence necessarily, but definitely more than the average person. It was very cheap still back then uh, because the cottages were not well kept. They were just fishing shacks. It was really when the gays came and started to rent them and started to buy them that we started to beautify the community more. And largely at first it was men. It was the men who came out because we live in a time now where if I like something, you know it instantly because I put it on my Facebook, I put it on my Twitter. But back then, you know, it was all word of mouth and it was also secretive. So how did you find Cherry Grove? You found Cherry Grove because somebody told you when you met them, you should go to Cherry Grove. Mm -hmm. And that meant either they knew you were gay and they were gay and they liked it and they were telling you to go. Or I've even heard stories where people have wound up in bars in Long Island and someone tells them, you should go to Cherry Grove <laughs> because they were, you know, butch or something, you know, and so they knew. And then people would say, okay, well, let me go figure out what this Cherry Grove is. Oftentimes they would rent in these other towns on Fire Island. Fire Island seems to be known as gay, but it's 
the gay towns are only uh, Cherry Grove and the Pines, and there's 15 other towns that are all straight people. So people would rent in other towns and kind of hear the whisper, Cherry Grove is gay, and they'd make their trek down here. So as much as I love being down here in the dressing room, would you mind taking us upstairs to the actual theater? Yes, we'll go upstairs and, and we'll look at the historic stage. Watch your steps, it's a very tight fit. This old, old theater. <laughs> wow, okay, I'm just peeked in the theater. Oh, we're going up on the stage. Yep, up on the stage even. Ugh. Feel the legends. I can the aroma of theatrical history wafting through this air and the beach. <laughs> it's history and the beach. Um, so yeah, and we're standing on the on the stage under the proscenium arch and looking out to where the audience would be sitting. Actually, there's you've got a good setup here. It's you know we've got pretty big uh, names that tend to come here and perform for us, so we had to upgrade. How many can you fit in here? You know, when I did my show, The Monroe Sisters, uh, we were packed to the gills, and we squeezed in, I think, about 175. Yeah, okay. we can we can get in a pretty good crowd. Now, originally, the first theater that was floated over was very small, very intimate, and again, no lights, no sound system. So they were here hoofing it, you know, these entertainers from the city, and really putting on these huge, elaborate shows that in the city would have been illegal. Theater by candlelight and lantern, I assume, right? Because I imagine that this, maybe some of the repertoire here was rather atypical. I think, like, I think what people were doing primarily were taking things from the regular world, things that you knew, and twisting it tongue in cheek. There was um, a censor, an arts project censor, Helen Ely, and Helen was really strict about what could be said on the stage and what could not be said. So in rehearsal, they would do a very clean version for Helen. And then when they did the show, they did all the, you know, double entendre jokes and things like that and talked about um, gay issues. So this is really in the beginning, they were starting to sort of tongue in cheek look at life back in America and relate it to here. And then men in drag, which is a huge thing. And, in, you know, we have RuPaul's Drag Race and everybody is a drag queen these days. But really back then, again, it's it was illegal and you could face a lot of trouble for someone catching you in drag or catching a picture of you in drag. And men came on this stage in full drag and sang live and danced and performed and allowed pictures. So it was pretty groundbreaking. In the 1950s? In the 1950s, yeah. And so it's for all of these reasons, then, that this stage and this theater was added to the National Register of Historic Places. It's the longest-running LGBTQ theater in the United States, so a lot of history has moved through here, a lot of famous people. Um, we have so many visitors, gay and not gay, that came and either performed on this stage or sat in the audience and watched a show, so... Well, why don't we go back to the rooftop and get an overview of the town as we talk about Cherry Grove as it goes into the 1960s. Fabulous. Let's go. So we're up on the roof again. We're looking out across the walk to the Cherry Grove Hotel, which was the site of yet another disaster on September 27th, 1956, when the Duffy Hotel, which formerly sat there, caught fire and burned to the ground. And it would, of course, soon after be rebuilt as the Cherry Grove Hotel. 
but it wasn't the same scene surrounding the hotel that had once been around Duffy's. And that would be partly because the the new owners would bring out bartenders and staff from gay bars in New York City, many of them backed or, or run by the mafia, but who also brought with them a certain business know-how and introduced a new kind of commercialism to the community. That was one of the amazing parts about being out in Cherry Grove at that time is that the bars that you could go to in the city, as limited as they were, were run by the mafia. And so they were very seedy. They were very dark. And then, of course, there was the fear that at any moment they could be raided. And so what was so different out here, while maybe the mobsters ran that bar at the hotel, you had the beach, you had the bay, you had just the boardwalks to be out in nature and be gay and to see each other. And there's such a levity to that. You know, just even us sitting here up on top of the community house with this breeze, looking at the bay and kind of being able to see the town and the people moving. How great that must have been to come out from the city and have that freedom out here. Who was doing that, again, mostly sort of upwardly mobile gay men. And in all honesty, would it have happened had we not gotten electricity and running water? Because for most of the people, again, you know, candles, gaslight, the refrigerators were run on uh, propane. And so the water was a pump in the back and you would run back from the beach to be the first one who got the collection of water from the roof that had been heated by the sun all day and you'd get the hot shower and all your roommates would get cold water. So that's really probably what sort of brought people out here in the 60s in such droves is convenience that wasn't here prior to that. So there were some major changes out here. The crowd was changing. Electricity had arrived. Thankfully, though, there were no highways barreling through here as with, you know, other areas of Long Island. That's true, although in the 1960s, there was a certain Long Island State Park commissioner who wanted to change that, Greg. Robert Moses had kept his eyes on Fire Island for decades by this time. Remember that Jones Beach, which is just 20 or so miles west of here, was developed in the late 1920s. And Fire Island played a central role in this master plan he had of building this ocean drive that would go all the way from the southern shore out to Montauk. And one that he dreamed for decades would be the most beautiful drive in the world. And this drive would go straight through Cherry Grove. He would have constructed bridges at both ends of, the, of Fire Island, and a highway or a parkway would have gone straight down the center of it. And as we have said in our last show, and in many of our previous shows, whenever Robert Moses had this inkling to do something catastrophic for the good of New York, he usually rammed it through. And and that very well could have happened here. But a few interesting things took place. Uh, There was a college professor who lived in the Grove named Osborne who wanted to preserve the natural dunes and the seashore that was just west of Cherry Grove. And so Professor Osborne bought up 36 acres of land called the Sunken Forest. Then in 1962... Moses, because he couldn't ram it through the sunken forest, decided to move the highway over the water, uh, which would have then actually forced beachgoers to take tunnels that were spaced to every half mile under the highway to go swimming. 
But fortunate Greg is like looking at me with mouth agape. Horrifying. What the what? Well, residents fought back, and in 1963, a local congressman named Otis Pike managed to pass the Fire Island National Seashore Act of 1964, which created a national seashore in Fire Island. The law basically made it impossible for Moses to build anything out here. But it even went one step further, which is interesting to today's show, because it prevented Cherry Grove from actually becoming geographically any larger. It actually froze its boundaries in place. So nobody here can build in Cherry Grove? Wait. No, you can build here uh, just within Cherry Grove's 1964 borders. You just can't expand into the dunes or the wilderness east or west of it. So it kept Cherry Grove contained. Although this was happening at the same time that more tourists were coming to spend a week or the season or just the day. All of which led to a massive real estate and development boom, you know, to accommodate these new throngs of tourists. But constrain it to this spot right here where we are, meaning new constructions were built atop every available piece of sand within the current boundaries. And now, Greg, just to pivot for a second from Robert Moses to Bette Midler and Dionne Warwick, if I might. Yes. Been waiting 14 years to make that pivot. It was in the 1960s when big gay-friendly icons like Bette Midler and Dionne Warwick would come to Cherry Grove to perform. Bette Midler, right there, Greg, would (laughs) perform. That's not her. Right there. Where? Oh, my God. She's still there. Bette Midler would perform at the Cherry Grove Beach Hotel right across from us. And this very same hotel would give us, by the end of the 1960s, the very first Miss Fire Island contest as well. But, you know, let's not forget, I mean, these are fabulous entertainments that are, you know, drawing people out here. People are feeling free to act as themselves, but we're still in 1960s and... And I'm sure that many of them were still in danger of being arrested, of being harassed by some of the straight locals who were not tolerant of this sort of thing. Well, you definitely had the raids, uh, you know, the police raids that were done quite often because it did become sort of a gay mecca, which, of course, now it truly is a gay mecca. But even back then, it was known as the place to go. And so the police from the other side surely knew that they could uh, bust men out here and arrest them and even to dance with another man on that dance floor was illegal so they had to have that one woman stand in the middle and all the men would dance around her so when the police would target the community it was often at night when men were out cruising and they would do a raid flood the beach with lights arrest all the men bring them down to the dock that we're looking at right now handcuff them to the dock and collect as many as they could, bring them back over to the other side of the bay, back to the mainland, and book them, have their names printed in the paper, of course, gay men who were being arrested on perversion. So it it was still a very scary time. Even though this was a safe haven, it was not completely safe. And one thing that I, I love, one fact about the raids is that what was helpful was at midnight, the last ferry leaves Cherry Grove and the police had to get on it or they couldn't get home. So after midnight, Cherry Grove truly was free. Like everyone could do whatever they wanted because they couldn't be arrested. So while in the city, the fear was there all night long until you got home in Cherry Grove, at least after midnight, you got to be free. So even here, those raids would continue actually until 1968. 
um, when organizers from the Mattachine Society, who had just organized a sip-in at Julius's in 1966, two years before, and we have an episode about that from a few years back, the Mattachine Society encouraged men at the Grove to fight back. And so, on the night of August 24th, 1968, when 27 men were rounded up and arrested, 22 of them actually fought their charges in court with a defense lawyer named Benedict Vituro, who was the president of the Suffolk County Criminal Bar Association. And Vituro got all 22 of them acquitted. And the police raids basically stopped on Fire Island. It'd be 12 years later, in 1980, when New York State would overturn its sodomy laws. Well, now, speaking of cruising, why don't, <laughs> why don't we go to a very famous resort here for men, a kind of ornate fantasia, a spectacle on the east side of Cherry Grove, a place known as the Belvedere. Let's go check it out. Okay. But you got to have friends. The feelings are so strong. You got to have friends to make that day last long. I got friends. Okay, Tom, we've uh, we've scooted east on the boardwalk and gotten to certainly one of the most grand architectural structures. We've arrived at the pearly gates, Greg, and the bubbling fountain. It's probably one of the more unique pieces of architecture um, on Long Island. Uh, It probably has more in common with the mansions of the Gold Coast than anything Fire Island, actually. So this, the Belvedere guest house, was built in 1957 by scenic artist and department store window display designer... John Eberhardt. What we're seeing is a, a building a little bit akin to perhaps something you'd see at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. It looks like it's constructed of marble, although it is a mostly wood structure. It is a, a resort today for all men, but when it opened, it was co-ed. To quote Esther Newton's book again, architecturally, the Belvedere was a radical departure from the New England-style beach cottages and salt boxes. Gay Rococo, Grover Paul Jablonski called the Belvedere with its Versailles mirrors and mock Roman statues. John Eberhardt, who constructed this, also developed other properties here on the east side. And so this kind of, there's a newer feel on the east side of Cherry Grove than on the west side. Was there a kind of east versus west dynamic to Cherry Grove starting in that particular period since it was a little bit different? Oh, there still is. We have weekly dance battles down at the center of town, uh, east versus west. <laughs> um, we it, it was. There was definitely an idea of the old school Cherry Grove that kind of began on that side of town, the west side. And now that we're on the east side, it grew up more because of John Everhart and the little cottages that he was building. But also because, as you said earlier, the town itself had a lot of limitations on the space that you could build your home. It was very small lots. And so this started to develop more. The houses started to become a little more ornate and it started to become its kind of its own community in a sense. <laughs> Let's go inside and take a, take a gander at this uh, extraordinary building. We're walking past some bubbling fountains and some Roman heads. Now, a major element of the gay history of Fire Island, we haven't actually discussed yet and we won't be going there but that is the community just to the east of where we're standing 
the Fire Island Pines, which was established in 1953 and was advertised by its developer Home Guardian Company as a, quote, family community. To quote from the New York Times in 1952, quote, Fire Island Pines derived its name from the extensive growth of pine trees and holly. The popular legend is that this growth started in the middle of the last century after a ship laden with Christmas trees and holly wreaths bound for America from England ran aground on the island and was wrecked. Anyway, over the next couple decades, the Pines would develop into an alternative gay community, but with a very distinct difference, and I think that one that exists in some form to this day. The gay people who moved to the Pines were wealthier, perhaps in some ways more professionally prominent, and as a result were, generally speaking, more closeted. And in comparison, or definite contrast, with the flamboyance and the camp that you know drove the culture of Cherry Grove, the Pines in the 1960s was very straight-laced. And this is in part thanks to a former model named John White, who really developed many of the institutions of the Pines during the 1960s, including the two major centers of public social activity, which included the Pavilion Dance Club and the Blue Whale Bar both of which are still around today. And of course, they weren't the only things being constructed out there because many, many new homes were also being constructed. The Pines, and even some areas of Cherry Grove, actually, have stunning examples of mid-century architecture, some spectacular modernist homes that were built between the 1960s and the 70s. Really more daring than anything you might see in like another type of beach location, for instance. The only way you can really see any of these places, of course, is if you walk along the beach, because... From the boardwalk, these houses are often blocked from view because it is a much more closed and private environment than the Grove. As a result of this, though, more prominent and famous men who were gay, uh, and it was mostly gay men, you know, at least by the 70s, they chose the Pines as a destination. You know, fashion designers, models, and other entourages. So a lot was happening in the Pines, and I can imagine, given what was happening in New York after Stonewall and in the 1970s in the gay scene, the Pines must have been quite a destination. It was a bacchanalia of glamorous people, beautiful men. You know, Halston had a house out there in the Pines, Calvin Klein. In 1976, the fashion journalist and journalism icon, Andre Leon Talley, photographed the beautiful people of the Pines and later observed, quote, Fire Island was fun. It stood for fun with a capital F and a freedom with a capital F. People were free. I had never seen anything like it because I came from the South. It was an eye-opening moment of liberation to see a community where people could just be themselves. I mean, gay men in particular. Gay men in particular? What did he mean by that? Well, very key to the relationship between Cherry Grove and the Pines is this wooded area that is in between the two neighborhoods, nicknamed the Meat Rack, a legendary spot for hookups between men, especially at night. I'm not going to get into the pornographic details, but a lot of class and social distinctions that held the two communities apart, and still do to this day, 
kind of disappear in the meat rack. But in summary, by the 1970s, you have two communities out here that are quite different, although the two collided and would meet up in the meat rack. Uh, And they would actually, these two communities, would clash in perhaps a more melodramatic way. And Parker, you actually made an extraordinary film about this particular event which occurred in the summer of 1976, the Pansy Invasion. You had mentioned Pansy earlier in the show and, and Pansy's connection with the community house and theater. Could you give us a description of the events which occurred in the summer of 1976? Yeah, so I mean, just to kind of give you a very quick overview... One of our community members, Terry Warren, who would today be considered a trans woman, went over to the very closeted community of the Pines, and she tried to have dinner and was refused. She came back to Cherry Grove and you know, told her friends, and Pansy, being one of the most vocal of them, said, we will go over there and protest. So Pansy and a small crew of people got together and dressed up, both men and women. Everybody got dressed in drag, you know, really campy drag. And they took a water taxi over to the Pines, and they sort of invaded and they and they went to the bar and they insisted that they be served and they were and then that event continued uh, and is now of course known as the invasion of the pines which happens every july 4th and thousands of people come to either participate in drag or to just be uh, spectators of the event and the pines and the grove just fill up and it's it's a great event now that started as an act of protest within our own community And it's kind of the Christmas of Fire Island. (laughs) Pansy will love to hear that. Did the event, did this invasion result in a sort of liberation taking place within the Pines? Did they become a little bit more relaxed? John White, who owned the establishments and who was responsible for kicking out Terry Warren, did not accept the invasion until the 90s. Every year when it came, he tried to fight it. And so that was him. I don't know if he's the voice of the community in that sense, but it slowly, I think, turned. But I think really what helped the Pines kind of uh, come out of the closet more was unfortunately the AIDS crisis. The two communities kind of came together and really started to fundraise. And I think a lot of gay people kind of felt a need to be more out once the AIDS crisis happened. And in a sad way, it it did act, I think, to make us a little bit stronger of a community. It's incredible to think that it was 1981, 40 years ago this year, that the first reference to what we would call today AIDS um, was published in the New York Times. 40 years ago, how was it felt here and, and how did it change the community? Well, it was felt in two major ways. Number one, you had a lot of death. We are often called ground zero of the AIDS crisis, Fire Island, because so many gay men knew this as a mecca to come to. And so, so many men started to die. And you had women who were here as renters primarily, and the women were starting to have better jobs in the city. They were making more money, and they were seeing their brothers get sick and die, and they were helping them, and they were taking care of them. They were wiping up the sick, taking care of their dogs, dealing with their families who, you know, didn't want to even touch this person uh, infected with the AIDS virus. So now you had an influx of women who thankfully kept this community very queer by buying the houses instead of letting you know their families just sell it off to whoever so that's really the AIDS crisis we saw a lot of death and we saw a lot of new life come to the community in in, in a strange way it's amazing I saw 
one of the videos that the archives posted on on YouTube of the Fire Island party scene in the 1980s with a great soundtrack. And there are these clips of men still in the 80s partying. There, there's still a party that's happening here, despite death and just all the anxiety and fear that surrounded them. How did it still remain, I guess, an escape for people, even during its, you know, during their darkest hour? I think sometimes that's when people need, you know, their escape the most is when they're in their darkest hour. And Cherry Grove has done that for so many people. So many people come here and say, oh, I was at the lowest point of my life. And just being here in this breeze and going on the boardwalks and the way people say hello to each other and, and, you know, the dogs and the community. It's just such a, a lovely place. I think it probably for people during that time was a great respite. It really was a place where they could come together and not be judged by the outside world. Cause I'm sure a lot of men who were suffering from the AIDS crisis were even in New York city sort of, uh, treated as lepers and in Cherry Grove, they were loved. And loved, as you mentioned uh, just now, and also in your documentary Grove girls loved and taken care of by many women, by many lesbians who were living here during this time. Then during the eighties and nineties, there is a population shift, which you just alluded to a kind of recalibration of the populations out here, right? It, there's more of a dominant lesbian population now than there ha- than there was 20 years ago. For sure, yeah. I would almost say it's equal, if not more women. Uh, our, our community positions are largely held by very active women. And I think now today, we're seeing more people of color, more trans people. And it's so important. I think a lot of people will say, we don't need Cherry Grove anymore. We don't need a space like this. We don't need a safe haven because you can be gay anywhere. I don't know if that's really true. But what I do know is that people of color, lesbians, trans people, we still need the safe space. We still need a place where we can come to and we can be free, we can be ourselves, not be judged, and not be persecuted. And Cherry Grove has been that since the 1950s, and it still is today, and and we, we hope it continues to be forever. And before... We leave Cherry Grove. I just wanted to read an excerpt from a book written in 1975, but an excerpt that could very well describe Cherry Grove in 2021. The, the book, by the way, is Welcome to Fire Island, written by Jack Nichols. The Grove reflects the changes, moral and sexual, that have taken place in America at large. It continues, as always, to be blatant. An old buddy, Angelo, says that the rest of the world is only now catching up with what the Grove has stood for all these years. Without suggesting that Cherry Grove is ideal in every respect, or that its lifestyles are blueprints for all, there's truth in what he says. To be able to wander half-crocked on sod that's safe, wound in some giddy costume, to be able to find, fondle, and feel to plant snapdragons and sunflowers, attend parties in the warm glow of early evening, and watch with pride tourists from the orthodox world peering curiously at what must seem topsy-turvy to them. The photo exhibition at the New York Historical Society Safe Haven, Gay Life in 1950s Cherry Grove, will be on display in the outdoor exhibition space at, at the Historical Society through October 2021. Parker, where can our listeners find out more information about the Cherry Grove Archives collection? 
please visit our website, of course, cherrygrovearchivescollection.com. Of course, visit the exhibit in New York City. It's fantastic, whether you're gay, straight, or anywhere in between. Well, Parker, thank you so much for joining us today on our whirlwind topsy-turvy adventure through the history of Cherry Grove. Thank you very much, guys. It was very fun. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boys. Because of you, Greg and I could buy ferry tickets to come here today to Cherry Grove, and we're able to devote all of our time to producing the Bowery Boys podcast. We wouldn't be here on Cherry Grove without you. So thank you so much. Join the fun. Get the extra audio bonus material when you join extra audio feed at patreon.com slash boys. And finally, if you'd like more gay history, please join Kyle Supley and Michael Ryan on a very special virtual Barry Boys Walks at 7 p.m. on June 10th, 2021. The tour is called Gay Bars That Are Gone, talking about the history of gay bars that sometimes go back to the late 19th century, although they spend a lot of time in the 1960s and 70s, of course. And I'll be on there to share extra special secrets myself, including I'll tell a couple more stories about a cherry grove that we didn't get to share here on the show. You can get those tickets and others, including actual live walking tours, because our guides are going back into the streets now. Woohoo! For real walking tours of New York City. Buy those tickets and join the fun at BoweryBoysWalks.com. Thank you for listening, not just to this show, but to all three parts of our road trip to Long Island uh, series. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great Long Island week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. See you real soon.